I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have known, made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are the last four verses, five verses of Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, July the 9th, 20. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our study in the books of 1 Samuel and of the Acts of the Apostles, but we've changed now. We've finished the Gospel of Luke, and now we're moving into the Gospel of Mark for the next season of time. So we begin with a story that I had to preach again a couple of weeks ago uh, that had to do with David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath. Remember, Goliath has been going out and he's been taunting the, uh, the Israel army. And, and what he's saying to him is, is that let's just make this one-on-one. You know, we, let's not fight his armies. Let's just keep it one-on-one. And if I beat you, then you'll be our servants. But if your guy beats me, then you'll be our, or I'll, we'll be your servants. And so now David has been sent by his father in this passage to go check on his brothers and make sure everything's okay. Jesse said, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring back some token of them. There's, a, there's some similarity in language in all this to what happens with... Um, Jacob sending Joseph, the youngest, to go check on his brothers. And, and to, he, he makes an evil report of them. And they, so they're jealous of him after that. And they begin to hate him because of his dreams and because he made this, quote, evil report of them. And so here, Jesse sends David down to the battle. And so he goes in, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And so as he gets there, the host was just going out to the battle, shouting the battle cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. So he's, he's behind the lines and drops this stuff off back there, the cheeses and all that, and, and then goes up to the line to see what's going on. Remember, David had previously been Saul's armor bearer, and so he, uh, he was known to Saul, quite well known to Saul, because he was not only his armor bearer, he was also the one who played the lyre when Saul lost his mind, and he would play the lyre, and that would then calm the man down. You know, it's like music uh, soothes the savage beast kind of a thing. And so <clears throat> when they come up, Goliath begins to pronounce against them again, and the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. All the men of Israel saw the man, fled from him, and were much afraid. All of them, including David's brothers. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen the man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Free in Israel means that they would be free from the services that are typically rendered to a king. Some of the stuff that that Samuel, in fact, said um, 
that a king would do to the people of Israel. And then they said, nonetheless, we, want, we still want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so this free in Israel would imply that they're free from, from certain kinds of services that would have to be rendered to the king and to the, to the nation itself, as well as some of the taxation that would have been put on the people. And so <clears throat> David says, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Well, they, they just told you that. He just wanted it repeated. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's good framing. God sent them out. And so they represented the army of God when they go out in this manner against these Philistines. So they're sent into this battle. And David says, you know, why are you all all afraid? You represent the living God which is all that actually matters in this instance. We shouldn't be afraid of him. And so then they say, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. So David's oldest brother, remember the first one that Samuel looked at and said, this has got to be the one. Eliab comes up and, and he gets in David's face. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and I know the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. D do you see perhaps why? <laughs> God said no to Eliab. Because what, what does he say? What does he ultimately say to Samuel about that? You look on people as a man looks on people, but I see the heart. And so Eliab here completely misjudges David in every respect. But there's this, this, this brotherly jealousy thing that's going on, and, it, and it's very similar to what goes on with Jacob and Joseph and the, Joseph and his brothers. It, it's, it, they think, they assume certain things about David. They don't seem to even know that his father sent him there to that place. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And so David uh, ignored his brother. And he, David knew the intentions of his heart and why he was there. He was just deeply offended that this uncircumcised Philistine, in his words, would be speaking this way to the armies of the living God, and the armies of the living God would make no response at all. I mean, what, what is Eliab, what is wrong with this guy? Why, why will he not step in to the battle against this uncircumcised Philistine? Well, his heart's not after God. He's still framing the battle in the wrong terms. It's us against them. It's not God on our side. It's just us against them. They're thinking as men. They're thinking like the spies thought before... Forty years later, they finally entered the land because the spies were afraid of the giants that were in the land. And so they, they forget who they are and who they belong to and who they represent. It's important to always remember that. But it's important to be prepared for that battle in God's way as well, trusting in him and not in everything else in the world, including who we are or what we've done. And, and at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he tells us about John the Baptist, right from the start, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'll send the messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to take away somewhat from the temple. If forgiveness of sins is is contingent on this baptism, you know, then then what what else 
is going to be thrown out? Are, you, are we literally going to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this particular instance? And so all the country of Judea and Jerusalem was going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sin. So there's, there's the predicate for what's to come later is baptism in the name of Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they were confessing their sins there. And so, so they weren't going to the temple with their, with their sacrifices and making sacrifices and confessing their sins there. Though they were going out to John, who was preparing the way for the Messiah, to prepare a people. And so the people had been oppressed by the cost of all these um, sacrifices that were necessary and because they also then had to pay the temple tax and they had to pay for the sacrificial animals and they had to do all that and and it was no longer a transaction between the individual and god now you you needed a priest to mediate that transaction because what the priest's job was is to make sure that the sacrificial animal that was that was brought was one that, that fit with god's instructions which means that it had to be a, a clean and pure animal it couldn't have defects and blemishes on it. It had to be the most expensive of the ones that they had, the, the most dear or costly. They didn't have to buy it, but it had to cost them something one way or another. And so what, what had become, though, was is the system was so broken that, that you didn't bring your own animal anymore. You had to buy it when you got to Jerusalem. That way you knew that it was going to be acceptable by the priest. And you can bet the priests had a deal and a racket going with the people who were selling those animals and getting that money, getting a kickback from having pre-approved the animals these people sold. You can see how that works. It's not very tricky at all, in fact. But what you get is these people going out there into this place confessing their sins. And, and you know, it's when I, before I, we, we were going to move to Rwanda, this goes back to about 2000, um, 2001, somewhere in there. We, we had gone, Suzanne and I had, in 1999 and visited and spent the time to say, all right, Lord, could we do this? Is this is this where you know something you think we think you're calling us to? And what we determined was we could go, but we still had to determine whether we would go. And so I did a lot of um, investigative work. I did a lot of reading. I, I, I put together. I spent three months in Rwanda and put together a budget while I was there because after the genocide in 1994, almost every single mission or uh, NGO had pulled out of of the country for a while. And so it was very, very difficult to get any kind of cost of living numbers. And so I wanted to go and spend the time to chase down where the kids would go to school, what we do about food, all those kinds of things. Um, and so I went and spent all that time. But before I did all that and while I was there, I read every single book that I could find, literally every single book I could find about Rwanda. And one of the things that came to my, my attention was a book about the East African revival in the 1930s. And it happened um, just outside, maybe 45 minutes outside of Kigali, a little bit northwest and what happened was the missionaries had gone away. They had gone away to a conference somewhere, and they came back. And suddenly these people are speaking some language they've never heard before. The missionaries were, didn't, had never heard this, and, and, well, neither had the people who were speaking it because they were speaking in tongues. People were getting healed. And, and so this thing called the East African Revival broke out. It was an indigenous movement. It wasn't something the missionaries brought. It happened while the missionaries were away, but it spread all over Eastern Africa. And so, but one of the the early highlights of the movement was is that people would begin confessing their sins publicly, and and that can be a problem. You know, if if I if I were having an affair with with my best friend's wife, and now I stood and confessed that publicly, well, that that's not quite the way to do that. <laughs> um, because now my friend knows something that, uh-oh, is going to cause a divorce and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I'm, I'm conf- I've got to be careful to confess my sins, not to confess your sins. And so that's the, 
I was just thinking about that this morning when I when I saw that thing about this this characteristic of confessing their sins, and so then you go out and you look at it, so who is this guy? Is he the big good looking guy who's out there drawing a crowd? No, it says he's clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's not like the women were going out there to see, you know, the good looking guy preach or whatever, or or other people either. I mean, it's a little strange. I mean, if somebody appeared looking like that today. Wouldn't be a big crowd of people going out, let's just say. And so, but but John, because the purity of his message and his mo- motives, uh, preached and said, after me who comes, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is pointing clearly to the coming of Messiah, the imminent coming of Messiah. There, there's no question that, that he the, the Holy Spirit attended his preaching and convicted people uh, of two things, one is that Messiah was coming imminently, and two that um, that their sins were were a barrier to them uh, effectively greeting the Messiah with joy, and so they come out and they're preparing themselves to greet the Messiah. Isn't that the job we have? Is to prepare people to greet the Messiah because he's coming again, but he's coming again in judgment to judge the living and the dead. And so John thought that's what he was preparing people for, but we know. That's what we're preparing people for because Jesus has come and he told us how he was coming again. It's important that we get that right, that we understand that, that our job is to prepare, prepare a people to joyfully greet the Lord, that he might have a bride prepared for himself on his return. He goes to prepare a place for us and our job is to prepare a people for him. So then we move on to the Acts thing. Remember that Peter's just come into the Gentile home of, of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who was a, a believer, but he just hadn't taken that step of being circumcised. So Peter comes in, and, and he is, he's talking about, uh, you know, it's not, it's not lawful for me to come and visit uh, with, a, with a Gentile home, but the Lord showed me in a vision that, that, that I shouldn't call anything common that he's made clean. So he begins to preach, and he says, I understand that God shows no partiality in every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, that's a proclamation, actually, of the Noahide Covenant which they said was the, the covenant with Noah, which was, which was applicable to all people. The Jews have a specific covenant. And so typically if you tried to uh, convert to Judaism, the rabbi would have an obligation to talk you out of it. And one of those would be to assure you that you have a place in the world to come so long as you keep those seven Noahide laws, N-O-A-H-I-D-E, laws. And, and you probably do, to be honest with you, and, and unless you go with kind of Jesus' definition of things, which is your heart, is what actually matters. And so Peter's proclaiming the Noahide covenant. He's proclaiming that there, there is a connection between the Noahide covenant and, and eternal life. So he's, tell, he's assuring them, I guess. He's not preaching to them, really. He's assuring them that what he sees here is sufficient for him to believe that they have a share in the world to come. And then he begins to say, as for the word that he sent to Israel, you hear that? Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Jude- Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And were witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify. He's the one appointed by God to be a judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what Peter's proclaiming here is the same message that he would have proclaimed to the Jews. But, but he's, he's kind of proclaiming it in a way to the Gentiles that says, you've heard all these other things. You have the word of God. You have all that stuff, but you're not circumcised. And so I'm just going to tell you, that here's how Jesus fits in with what you believe. And while he was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So Peter, Peter is the one whose beliefs are being changed here. He, he believes initially that, that this message that he has is for Jews, and, but, but that I do understand now that there are people all over the world that I need not treat as Gentiles uh, by separating myself from them, and that's good, and that's a good thing. And then he proclaims this message, and then the Holy Spirit falls, and the proof was all the believers who had come out from Joppa with him um, were, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Huh. And now Peter doesn't know what to do, but he does the right thing. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Now, we don't know exactly what that means as far as everything else is concerned. Peter's probably a little bit confused and concerned because he's got to go back at some point, and he's got to, he's got to give an accounting of himself before the, the rest of the disciples or apostles at this point. And so there's not a provision really for them coming into the, into the church at this point. They were just baptized. And so what were they, they were baptized. You know, in Ephesus, what happens is, is that it goes in reverse, right? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. That, that the, the people are baptized into the name of Jesus. And then Paul asks them, there's something missing here. Were you baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know it. And here we get it in the, in the case of Cornelius and those who are there. We get exactly the opposite that goes on with them. God sees what's in their heart, and he baptized them with the Holy Spirit before Peter and them baptized them. But baptism remained an important part of the conversion experience, and the conversion uh, itself had to be sealed with baptism, it's important that we not denigrate the role of baptism no matter where we stand on the spectrum of, of how we baptize and how much water we use and when we baptize and all that. Baptism is an important and integral part of the life of a Christian.